This week's TribCast is sponsored by Raise Your Hand Texas. Listen to the new Raise Your Hand Texas podcast, Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas Incorporated is dedicated to creating access to healthcare for uninsured and low-income families in South Texas through healthcare services, advocacy, and strategic grant making. Learn more at mhm.org. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for July 28th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hey, Ross. Uh, Health and Human Services Reporter Karen Harper. Hello. And reporter, Reporting Fellow Haiti Perez Moreno. Hi. Hi, thank you all for joining us. So this week, um, I want to talk about the disturbing trend that Texas has found itself on in the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. And then later we'll talk about uh, what many are finding to be a disturbing trend around Texas college athletics. But first, let's do the the health issue. Karen, you are just back on from vacation. And while you were on vacation, we saw these numbers really taking a turn for the worse. I'm looking at our coronavirus tracker right now, and and as of uh, basically yesterday, hospitalizations for the coronavirus have increased by 1,663 patients over the last seven days. The average new cases in Texas increased by about 2,300 cases, and we're seeing deaths slowly start to tick up as well. A lot of the blame for this seems to be on the more contagious Delta variant, and it led to some news from the CDC yesterday about kind of expanding the use of masks. First off, as we start, can you tell us where we stand on kind of the mask question and, you know, across the country and also in Texas here? Well, it's important to note, Matthew, that the CDC did not recommend or put into place any mandates. Um, They're kind of staying out of that conversation to a large extent. Um, So, and they don't really, they can't, right? They can't mandate masks for people in Texas, for example. And and so, um, but they are strongly, strongly urging that communities that have seen 50 or more new cases per 100,000 people in the last seven days, which is how they define substantial and high transmission areas, to um, put in place more stringent mask um, mask wearing practices. In Texas, it's voluntary. And according to Greg Abbott, Governor Greg Abbott yesterday, it doesn't look like that's going to change any. It doesn't look like he's going to start letting counties and cities and school districts uh, create any mandates for anybody um, Right now, uh, they are uh, still relying on, on uh, what they're calling uh, a culture of personal responsibility. Uh, if you live in a dangerous area and you feel like you need to wear a mask, put the mask on. Otherwise, the counties and the schools can't tell you what to do. Um, you'll see, you're, we're seeing counties and cities kind of increasing their stage, you know, their, their risk level stages, their color codes, whatever they happen to be using locally to signify increasing hospitalization rates and increasing um, case rates. Um, um, but I'm, you know that this stuff doesn't really carry the weight of law, as we, as most of us know by now, um, because it's it's against the law in Texas to require masks. Um, uh, if you are a governmental entity, if you're a business, you can you can you can still ask customers to wear masks um, before they come in. But otherwise, 
That's where we're at. And the last thing regarding that is out of 254 counties in Texas, more than 200 of them are at substantial or high transmission risk, which I think are transmission rates, which I think is key here also. Texas is in a, in a high state of transmission right now. Right. And, and of course, we are in a situation where when you look at the numbers, there are some things that look you know, quite conserving, concerning, one being the positivity rate, which is basically, you know, the percentage of tests that are taken in Texas that come back positive. And we are, you know, back up at a rate that is, you know, approaching kind of some of the worst parts of the pandemic prior to here. You know, we're over 10%. We're up to really almost a 15% as of, as of earlier this week. And, you know, 10% was kind of the amount that, that, that Governor Abbott had cited earlier in the pandemic as kind of a red flag amount. It was something that the Trump administration also looked at as, as an area where things were concerned, would be concerned. In other areas, we're still, you know, very far below the, you know, winter peaks. The, 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 the number of cases that are being reported seems smaller. The, the hospitalizations are climbing dramatically, but still well below what they were at the worst point. I think, Karen, I, you and I have talked individually about how hospitals seems to be one of the big things to be watching right now. Where are we with that? What are you hearing from hospitals across the state as to, are we in a danger zone yet? Are we are we approaching one? What's, what's the sense from those folks? Um, I, it, the sense I'm getting from the people I'm talking to in the hospital communities, and I've spoken with some people in rural hospitals, and I've spoken with some people who are in contact with the metros, and then, of course, we're hearing from the metros, too, is that they are on the brink um, and uh, of, of uh, having some real quality of care decisions they're going to have to make in terms of um, some of them going into what they call deferral status, which means they can't take new patients, they have to transfer patients. Um, there's not a lot of that going on yet because... Well, partly because um, they're not quite at the point where they're, you know, where they're, they're, um, you know, they're, they're putting people, you know, in hallways yet, like we've saw in some of our big, our big surges. We're, we're, it's important to note that we're not at our January level, right? We're about at our March level right now, um, this past March. Um, but staffing is a huge concern. I spoke with a, uh, a hospital uh, this morning in rural Texas who, um, they've got enough staff to uh, staff about 25% of their COVID beds on their COVID floor. Um, and uh, they saw their COVID admission rate double just overnight last night. Um, and then we've got the large hospitals that have gone on and off this status, being able to take new patients or not. And what's really the big pressure point for them at this point is staffing. Um, you know, you don't have the, the tens of thousands of state, you know, state-backed um, staffing resources that the state was sending in earlier this year to help with staffing. That 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 program ended in May, so the hospitals are kind of on their own, and they're having to deal with low employment. Uh, I mean, low uh, low staffing rates because these nurses are um, are fatigued. They got out of the business. Um, they're sick or they're finding other jobs that are better paying that are kind of these traveling nurses, uh, strike force type uh, teams. So, you know, we're not where we were at the worst of the surge yet, of course, but in terms of hospitalizations, they're, they're up dramatically. They're up um, in some cases, you know, double and triple uh, what they were seeing just at the beginning of, of the month. Um, and nobody knows how bad it's going to get, you know, um, eight out of nine, you know, which is upwards of 90% of the hospitalized people appear to be the unvaccinated, um, according to the, the numbers they're able to gather. 
Um, so, but we still have, you know, 12 million people or so to people in Texas um, or more actually um, 15 million people in Texas um, who aren't vaccinated yet. Um, and so there's a, there's a substantial, there's, there's a chance that this could be get a lot worse before it gets better uh, in terms of the hospitalizations. Karen, one thing that we've been hearing as people talk about this nationally and also in Texas is, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a, this is a, a wave of the unvaccinated, right? And, and one of the problems Texas faces is that it has a relatively low rate of people who are unvaccinated. It's interesting to hear Governor Abbott talk about personal responsibility and, and things like that, because it seems to me as though that is a big concern this time around. The, the, if we're saying it's up to you to, to whether or not you're going to mask up or anything like that, the people who you know, tend to heed the warnings of the health professionals are probably more likely going to be the people who are vaccinating, right? And so I, I do wonder about that message and whether it will land about, you know, you know, take responsibility for your action. We saw this kind of, you had a quote in your story yesterday about the mandate from Dr. Dr. John Hellerstedt, in which he gave a video statement on Friday where, you know, he was essentially begging Texans to get vaccinated and things like that. But it seems to be among a very large segment of the population, that message is just not landing right now. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's, it's an interesting disconnect. You're totally right. Because on the one hand, you know, Abbott's office is still very much pushing, um, you know, people to get vaccinated if they're eligible, um, uh, but stopping short of mandates for vaccines and mandates for masks and things like that. Um, and, you know, you have to wonder who these people are that will take that personal responsibility step um, to protect themselves and others with the vaccine, um, you know, if they haven't already, because really, I mean, there, there is a segment of the population that still has lack of access, lack of information. They, they just don't, you know, so, so we can't make it all a personal choice, but, but, you know, I, I think it's fairly well, you know, widely accepted now that the vast majority of unvaccinated people are there because they have chosen not to take the vaccine yet for whatever reason, you know, there might be some movable people still. And one thing that, that I will note is that the vaccine, the daily vaccine rate is actually going back up. Like we saw it basically fall off a cliff this spring. Um, and, you know, when I, all the eager people were, were got their shots and then everybody else, suddenly there was just, you know, nobody was going to get their shots anymore. But, and now we're seeing an uptick, right? We're seeing about a 20%, if I'm, if I'm recalling the numbers right, um, increase in our daily vaccinations, you know, um, I think they were down to below 50,000 at one point. Now they're over 60,000 uh, on daily average. So uh, the message appears to be getting out. Probably all this, this news about the Delta variant is starting to scare people a little bit. Um, you're also seeing a really big push by the state um, on social media, on pop-up vaccine clinics. Um, they're, they're really trying hard in terms of, you know, beating the bushes to get people to come out. And, and, and the numbers are going up slightly on that pace. Um, we're, we're just, you know, we're, we're so far behind and who knows what's going to reach them, if anything does. Ross, two things politically have caught my eye about this um, and made me wonder whether we're gearing up for another time where the locals and the state government are, are fighting here. One thing was city of San Antonio, some, some leaders, uh, I believe, including the mayor, suggesting to a TV station yesterday that they were interested in possibly exploring the idea of mandating that their city employees must get vaccinated, which is something that Abbott and other state Republicans have been very much against. 
And then another thing is the city of Austin, sorry, not the city of Austin, uh, Austin School District and a few other school districts talking about looking at ways to do remote learning, even though right now there does not appear to be a mechanism for schools that are not having, you know, in-person school to get state funding, you know, and both of those things are, 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 I guess, going back to a situation that is very well familiar to us right now, where the cities, particularly the big cities with more democratic leadership, wanting to do a lot more than what Abbott's going to let them get away with. Yeah, the, let me take the second one first, because it's, it's um, the politics are interesting. When you have a bunch of parents, if you're a school board member or a superintendent, and you have a bunch of parents, particularly those with kids under 12 years old, uh, saying, hey, I don't want my kids back in there yet. They can't get the vaccination. And, you know, they could catch something and bring it home. They could get, take something from home there. You know, we have immunocompromised people at home or this or that or the other. And I'm just not comfortable sending them back. You know, I think a lot of school districts are looking at that and saying, you know, that sounds like a reasonable thing whatever the governor says, and I can see them pressing both their state representatives and senators and statewide officials to, you know, go to the Mike Morath, you know, Mike Morath over at TEA or to the governor and say, hey, we've got a special case here. We need an out for this while we're sorting this out. You know, uh, in the past, there's been room for that. And if the parents raised you know, enough noise about it and said, you know, well, we're just not going to come to school, the state's, you know, moved to accommodate them in the past. It's going to be interesting to see what they do going forward. The city thing is interesting because there's a gray area here, I think. I may be wrong about this, but there's a the state says the cities can't tell you to wear a mask, but I'm not sure it told them that they can't tell their own employees to wear a mask or to be vaccinated. And, you know, there's like everything else here, there's probably some litigation and some busy lawyers already working on that. Um, but I think some cities are in the same place where they're saying, look, the federal government is talking about requiring this. Uh, the state government obviously is not, but we ought to be able to do this on the county level and on the city level and maybe on the school district level. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think uh, a, a, another round of this could could possibly be happening. And of course, we've seen creative solutions to get around uh, Governor Abbott's orders in the past, uh, particularly coming from from Bayer County, from the San Antonio area. So we, we could be seeing that again. We'll, we'll have to see. I think the schools one is, of course, the biggest question, though, because that is a very big population that clearly cannot get vaccinated yet and will be in close proximity with folks. And, and you know, the, it's a question of both, you know, can you do remote learning, but also can you require students to wear masks or, or how strongly can you encourage them to wear masks? And that'll be something that we will, will be watching in, in the coming weeks as, as school is getting ready to start. There's a tension between you're requiring my kid to go to school and you're barring my kid from taking the precautions that I want my kid to take. And, you know, if I'm a parent, you know, uh, I'm past those years now, but, you know, if I was a parent and had a, a fourth or fifth grader and couldn't get my child vaccinated and my child was required to be in school, I, you know, I could, um, I can see a situation where I would regard that as the, as the state putting my child at, at risk. Yeah. And this is just such a tough situation for the schools because we've experienced this where this was supposed to be the time where this was supposed to be the year where the schools really needed 
to catch up from so much learning loss from remote learning and, and everything that has happened over the last year and a half. And, and now here we are right about when it's time to start that. And there's this other huge obstacle that's being thrown in there as well. It's, it's definitely a big challenge. All right, well, let's, let's take a break and hear from our sponsors and then we'll come back and talk about another education issue. Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Join us at this year's Engage in Excel virtual conference and turn the tide on mental health. Early bird registration now open at mmhpi.org. And Texas Conference for Women. In this new episode, renowned journalist and best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell shares inspiration and advice for leading boldly and meeting the demands of the new world of work. Listen at conferenceforwomen.org. Okay, so we've been we've talked about a pandemic. We of course still have Democrats who have absconded to Washington D.C. to block a special legislative session. Lots of big news in the Capitol and Texas state government, but there's one thing that can knock all those things off the top front topic of conversation among lawmakers, and that's college football. And it, you know, believe it or not, we had something that came in here and really grabbed the attention of not just the higher education world and the sports world, but the politics world in Austin as well. Haiti, you've been covering this this for for a while for us. This idea of the possibility of the University of Texas, along with its rival, the University of Oklahoma, leaving the Big 12 for the SEC. Can you talk us through what's happened in the past week and, and where we are in this kind of discussion right now? Yeah, so this discussion began last week when rumors surfaced um, that UT Austin, University of Oklahoma, sorry about that, um, would potentially leave the Big 12 and join the SEC. And, you know, the Big 12 currently has 10 schools with about three Texas schools, um, not including UT already. And the SEC has um, Texas A&M in there. So there's definitely a mix in there. So, I mean, a lot of this happened, started there, and it kind of just had some you know, th there was a lot of discussion from lawmakers on how to react to this, you know, especially because this would have really drastic effects on a lot of the Texas schools who are currently part of the Big 12 right now. So it was a lot of speculation, you know, last week, later last week. And then we got some confirmation um, on Monday and Tuesday when UT and Oklahoma released a joint statement Monday morning that it would not renew its sports media contract with the Big 12. That's going to end in 2025. And that was really the first formal signal that it was planning on leaving the athletic conference on a confirmation, but, you know, just, um, you know, speculation there. And the day after, you know, after all that speculation, um, they officially, they released another um, statement. They released a letter to the SEC, basically requesting membership to the Southeastern Conference starting in 2025, July 1st, to be exact. Um, so, you know, Precisely when they end with the Big 12, they, you know, would hope to be part of the SEC. And, um, you know, sources um, from the Big 12, you know, kind of talked about how Eugene and, and um, Oklahoma, it wouldn't fully guarantee that the schools have to remain in the Big 12 through 2025. You know, there's a possibility that they can pay a penalty of more than $75 million for leaving the league early. And they would still give that required 18 months notice. And that's per the Big 12 bylaws. Um there's also speculation that OU and Texas would not be bound by the Big 12's contract if the conference dissolves before 2025. Um, and, you know, if the future of the conference is in doubt, you know, other schools might be looking for sort of a, a landing spot of where they might go um, because Texas and OU are definitely 
very big schools um, in the in, in the Big 12. So them leaving would have really drastic effects on that. Um, and so the next step for this um, in this saga will really just belong to the SEC. You know, 11 of its 14 presidents have to agree to extend an invitation to the two flagship schools. But it's really unclear when this takes place. Um, the SEC commissioner uh, said in a statement that, you know, the SEC hasn't actively pursued new members, but, you know, it wouldn't mind you know, adding along some new members if there's consensus among members. And I mean, the only school that has really made an active statement opposing this would be Texas A&M. They've made it clear that they, you know, really want to be the only Texas school in the SEC. Yeah, the way this has played out, you know, setting aside just the the political, you know, actual politician wrangling, which we'll get to later, but the way this has played out just among higher education and sports politics has been really fascinating. Of course, the news broke last week. Uh, Brent Zwerneman, the A&M beat writer for the Houston Chronicle, breaking the news during SEC media days, right around when the A&M football coach was about to kind of take the stage and start talking about the upcoming season. There And of course, all the different dynamics going into play immediately. You've got UT, which why are they doing this? Looking at possibly doing it because for competitive reasons, they've, they've struggled in recent years in the Big 12. They've, they've seen, you know, the challenges of recruiting athletes when they've got, you've got A&M and other big schools trying to recruit Texas athletes to the, the SEC was generally considered the the most talented league and the league that sends the most players to the NFL. They possibly are looking for a competitive advantage by by joining the SEC, while also thinking about finances. Right, Is UT coming off a COVID season like a bunch of other schools that lost a lot of ticket revenue by not being able to fill their stands, which I think probably has to factor into this. Then you have A and M, which is kind of prided itself as the only SEC school immediately expressing their opposition to this. And the kind of news coming out that this had been something that had been in the works for a long time, kind of without A&M knowing about it and maybe a little sense of betrayal there. And then, Haiti, you mentioned the three schools that remain in the Big 12 from Texas, TCU, Baylor and the University of Texas, or sorry, and Texas Tech University, all schools that make a lot of money from their membership in the Big 12 and could stand to really lose a lot of stature and possibly tens of millions of dollars each year without being associated with UT and OU in the Big 12. So a lot of kind of people mad at each other for a lot of different reasons and in a way that has been pretty fascinating to watch Ross uh, you you wrote a column about this about how you know nothing this is one of those political stories where the the impacts are immediately apparent and and that often tends to uh, lead to a lot of hurt feelings and anger among people involved right yeah if you know a little bit and you crack open the ethics campaign finance reporting for, you know, a big statewide official like Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick, you know, any statewide official, and look at people, you know, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as, you know, Baylor Bears or Aggies or Longhorns, you know, you can see that any statewide official is at some political peril taking any position at all in something like this. You know, if, if Greg Abbott, who is a graduate of the University of Texas, and a Vanderbilt's law school. Vanderbilt's a member of the SEC. Um, you know, if he leans that way and leans toward, you know, Texas, you know, one of his big donors is a guy 
who the stadium at Baylor is named after, Drayton McLean. You know, I mean, you get you get all kinds of uncomfortable conversations, and you get everybody in a in a real squeeze here. Um, the last time this happened, you know, when they when they formed the current Big Twelve, all the big players got involved, and all the allegiances had to do with either the schools that they went to or the schools that they represent. So, you know, you had people like, you know, Rob Janelle, who was the head of the House Appropriations Committee at the time, used to play football at Texas Tech. Guess who he was fighting for? Um, John Momford, who went to school at UT, represented Lubbock and, you know, was uh, in a position where he had to represent, you know, Texas Tech in that thing. He was chairman of Senate Finance. So, you know, everybody brought big hammers to this stuff. David Sibley, who was a, a important chairman in the Senate, was a Baylor grad. All of those same kind of forces are, are uniting this time. One of the interesting things here is that the legislature is relatively powerless unless the governor puts this on the agenda of a special session until they get to 2023 when they're in regular session. So one question here, sort of an underlying question is, does Greg Abbott want to weigh in by handing this to the legislature and who gets mad about that? Uh, everybody's walking around a minefield right now. Yeah, and it seems to me as though Greg Abbott has made the decision that he doesn't want to weigh in. I mean, prior, just really the week before, I think there was a video he posted on Facebook of him throwing a football with Bijan Robinson, one of the most prominent UT football players. He's not someone who is shy about commenting about his love for UT football and things like that. But I don't believe he said a peep about this since the news broke last week. And I, I can't imagine that's an accident. And I have to think that he's thinking the same thing you are, Ross, which is no matter what he does, someone's going to be angry. But the the political aspect of this that you brought up is very, very important. You talked about the, the strong political allies that Texas Tech and Baylor had back in the 90s when this happened. Of course, Tech, Baylor, TCU, Rice, UT, A&M, a bunch of those schools were in the Southwest Conference back then. And when when some schools worked to join the big, what was a, then the big eight, what, what later became the big 12, a lot of people look at particularly uh, Baylor and uh, Texas Tech as having that strong political support from uh, Bob Bullock, from a uh, Baylor bear in the governor's mansion, and see that as a reason why they made kind of won that golden ticket to get into the to, to the Big 12 conference. This time around, the governor is a longhorn. The lieutenant governor is uh, a uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County graduate, uh, kind of a neutral observer on this. There are, there are some prominent boosters. Of course, the, the chair of the House Appropriations Committee is an Aggie, Greg Bonin. The um, calendars chair, a very important position in the Texas House, is Dustin Burroughs, who represents Lubbock. And we wrote about how Bonin, Burroughs, uh, Lois Kolkhorst, a, a Texas senator who chairs the Health and Human Services Committee, I believe, and is a former athlete for TCU, you know, tried to get a meeting or, or got a meeting with the governor's office uh, about this, but did not seem to get any action on this. They filed legislation, but as, as of now, they seem fairly helpless. Of course, Heidi, you have written about their, about the Lieutenant Governor, Dan Patrick, Haiti, sorry, uh, who have, um, uh, who has called, created kind of a special committee to discuss this and, and their meeting on, on, on Monday, right? That's, that's the plan for that. 
Um, that one being chaired by Jane Nelson, a, uh, I believe a University of North Texas graduate, maybe a bit of a neutral party there. But what are we, what are we hearing about what's, what's going to come from that hearing, Haiti? Anything yeah. at this point? Yeah, so definitely that hearing. I mean, you know, the Texas Senate Select Committee of the United Study Athletic and Economic Impacts in the Colleges in the State. Um, that, you know, that, sorry, sorry about that. Um, is it okay if I repeat that? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, so, yeah, with Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick wanting to set a committee to study the athletic and economic impact other colleges will face with UT Austin's exit. I mean, there isn't much word on what specifically will be discussed, but, um, you know, there definitely can't be any specific legislation or things that can be passed, you know, with House Dems breaking form right now. You know, a lot of this feels very symbolic because not much can happen, even if Governor Abbott does add these things to sort of special agenda. It, right now, you know, legislation bills that have been filed feel very symbolic. You know, there was that bill that was filed by Representative Burroughs um, that has a lot of support around 30 co-authors, but really um, all of that legislation right now feels halted and sort of symbolic because, um, you know, if House Dems don't come back, not much can really happen on that front. Yep. You know, I think one thing that we've seen from people, particularly on social media, whenever I tweet this story, I immediately get a reply from someone saying, you know, I can't believe that the our state leaders are, are wasting their time talking about college sports and things like that. But it, it is worth emphasizing how big of a deal this is for, in particular, Texas Tech, TCU, and Baylor, where, as, as Haiti, your stories have mentioned, we're talking about you know upwards of nearly $40 million in annual payouts from the Big 12 Conference that that come from largely from TV deals and, and how possibly those deals fall apart with the exclusion of UT and OU in this. On top of that, this, you know, TV deals were a big part of the conference realignment discussions in about a decade ago. And but things have changed a little bit back then. At that time, one of the big issues was um, cable subscribers, right? And and schools like Baylor, TCU, and and uh, and tech, maybe they weren't the most dominant programs in Texas, but there was enough interest in those programs in cities like Austin, Houston, Dallas, big metro markets, that that cable providers would wanted to spend the money to make sure that they had the channels that had those teams on their kind of rosters. But now we're talking about TV deals that are starting in 2025 in the era of cord cutting, where maybe some of those issues are not as important anymore, where, where, you know, getting the Dallas market or the Houston market or things like that might not be as valuable as just the raw number of people who are interested in watching their games on TV. And there was a, an interesting report in The Athletic this week about how, um, you know, the vast majority, we're talking about like 27 of the 30 most watched TV games of Big 12 conference games involved either Texas or OU. And, you know, one thing that I think they're facing is, um, is, is that TV interest going to be there if, if those two teams aren't there? And if not, where do they go? Do they try to join another power conference? If they are, they're going to have to financially justify that to the conference's other members of whether another slice of the pie that they would be taking out that 
you know, out is outweighed by the amount of money they bring in. And I think there's a real concern among these programs that that this could lead to them not being in what is kind of considered a power five conference. And one thing that we've seen is that a school like Texas Tech, due to their membership in the Big 12, it's not just the TV money, it's also the attendance to the football games and things like that, the ability to sell tickets. It allows those programs to have their self, their athletics departments be self-sustaining. They're not necessarily bringing in profits, but they're, they're preventing the need of having to have the academic side of their school pump money into those athletic departments to sustain those programs where you look at a school like the university of houston which is not a member of those programs or is not a member of one of those power conferences and they are you know they're spending 10 sometimes 20 million dollars a year kind of subsidizing their athletic departments um and and if those schools particularly a school like tech that's a public school has to start doing that that's going to be a very damaging proposition for the school so we'll see what happens. I think it'll be very interesting to watch this hearing and, and see where we go from here. I mean, I think one thing that seems clear is that this train is moving. And if, if something were if something doesn't change soon, you know, these hopes, the Dustin Burroughs, the efforts that are being made are, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that they could come too late. Okay, so this will be something that we're going to continue to watch. I think there's going to be a lot of fireworks continuing on this, both in the, the hearing next week and the vote by the SEC and the politics as this will play out over the coming weeks, months, and days. I want to thank, though, Ross, Haiti, and Karen for joining us this week. I think that's about it for us. I also want to thank our producer, Michael Ray, and our sponsors, Raise Your Hand Texas, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute and the Texas Conference for Women. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to